in the United States, we've now built more storage facilities than we have uh, McDonald's, Starbucks, Dunkin' Donuts, Burger Kings, Wendy's, Walmart, Home Depots, and Costco's combined. Let's get ready to scale. Thanks for joining us for yet another episode of Ready to Scale. I am excited to be into our new season, season six, where the goal is to have some real talk about real estate investments, building wealth, building companies, and dig into the trenches a little bit more about some of the challenges um, you know that we can face and the different strategies that we can use. So I'm very excited to introduce to you today our guest, who is Joseph Woodbury. Joseph is the CEO and co-founder of Neighbor.com, a nationwide directory of available storage spaces for self-storage, cars, RVs, boats, inventory, all kinds of items that you might need to store. A very creative concept. Uh, prior to this, he has experience as a business analyst with the Church of Jesus Christ and Latter-day Saints, Sorensen Capital Partners, and Bain & Company. And one thing that I thought was kind of a cool fun fact about Joseph is he was even a Senate analyst for a short time uh, in his early years. He specializes in financial modeling, investment banking, and business valuations. He graduated from BYU in economics and strategy, and he's coming to us from Provo, Utah. So Joseph, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, definitely. So I think this is really cool. Um, how did you come up with the idea, you know, to launch neighbor.com? I, mean, I imagine there's got to be an interesting story behind this. Yeah, it, it was my co-founder actually that pitched me on the idea. And I remember the first time he told me about it, I thought, this is why has someone not done this before? How how do we have Airbnb and DoorDash, but no one has created a way to monetize space in your house this way? My co-founder actually came up with it when he had the need himself. He had just gotten married and, and he and his uh, wife were going to fly to South America for to work for a humanitarian org. And they needed a storage unit for their items while they would be gone. And they looked into getting one and all the storage facilities close by were totally full. The price they were going to have to pay at you know, driving 30 minutes away to the next city over to, to find a storage facility was in the hundreds of dollars a month. And my co-founder just thought, why would anyone do this? This is such a bad experience. So he found a friend that was letting, willing to let him store it in his garage. And he put his items there. When he got back four months later from South America, went to pick his items up. He just had the thought, this was such a better experience. I felt a lot more peace of mind knowing my items were stored in a nice clean garage in a neighborhood I trusted than in one of those dirty storage facilities. Plus I saved a ton of money. There's gotta be empty space in every neighborhood in the country. What if there was a way, you know, a directory or a marketplace where you could look it up and use that instead of the traditional storage industry. So um, again, he brought me on board. Absolutely love the concept. Marketplaces are just a, such a powerful mechanism to bring people together and it was in such a big space I mean, storage is a half a trillion dollar industry and so uh all, all the boxes kind of clicked for me and I, I i joined very quickly very interesting and very smart um you're right it's very what i would say is disruptive uh to the storage space industry which has definitely been highly profitable for a lot of folks 
Um, so, you know, I can, I can definitely appreciate that. Now I imagine it's got to vary a little bit from market to market. So for example, um, I'm recording today in Boston, Massachusetts, uh, you know, parking is prime real estate in Boston because it's such a concentrated area. There's such a limited number of parking. Um, I use an app from time to time called Park Hero, where, you know, I do exactly that. I rent out someone's parking spot and it may only be for a couple of hours, but it costs me like 50 bucks. There's nothing cheap about it. Um, you know, but nonetheless, I, I, I think it's brilliant to, you know, incorporate that into other ways that people can do it. Now, if investors want to take advantage of this, is this nationwide? Um, is it only available in certain markets? How have you scaled out across, you know, the geography of the United States and various markets? So when we first started, our company is based out of Salt Lake City, Utah. And so we started it here and just expected to, to grow it slowly over time. It quickly took off, however, and word spread uh, five years later, six years later, we now have active users in almost every single city in every state in the country. We're the we're the first storage provider in the in the nation to offer storage in all 50 states. Wow. Very interesting. Now, I'm curious, too. What about, you know, when you set up the company and the whole concept about it, I can only imagine that there had to be a lot of legalities that had to get flushed out. What were some of the surprises along the way that you had to tackle from a regulatory standpoint? You know, I'm, I'm thinking of like HOAs, zoning, uh, the same type of challenges, you know, that Airbnb is run into. What kind of challenges did you guys run into and how have you found the workarounds? Yeah, in fact, those were some of the first questions that I asked my co-founder when I first, you know, joined him in working on that is how are we going to deal with some of these things? Um, the, the biggest surprise for us was realizing how much easier this is to roll out than a company like Airbnb. Uh, we, we like to, you know, around the company, we like to say Airbnb is in the business of storing people. Uh, and when you're, you're in the business of, of dealing with people, whether that's Airbnb or Uber, there, there are a lot of regulatory restrictions and you have to deal with, you know, short-term rental laws and, uh, you know, room and board tax and, and things like that. Um, in self-storage, it's a much more unregulated space. And because it's such a low uh, traffic item, HOAs actually love this in terms of a marketplace concept. Uh, part of the problems that they sometimes deal with with short-term rentals is every day there's a new guest coming in and, and that kind of traffic is viewed as disruptive. Uh, this is something where, you know, if you store your your car in someone else's garage, no one sees it, it's tucked away. They come access it, you know, every six months or so when they need it, uh, when they travel into town to that area or something like that. It's very kind of non-disruptive. So we haven't had to deal uh, nationwide really with any sort of HOA restrictions. Uh, occasionally you'll see, we, we ask hosts to make sure to check their zoning restrictions. Occasionally you'll, you'll see zoning restrictions in certain municipalities where you're only allowed to store a certain number of vehicles. You can't go past a certain number, but it's it's pretty light. Uh, our, our hosts just, uh, we, we like to bill it as the easiest way to make money. Up until this point, your options have been go drive for Uber and you need to like go put in time and spend actual hours earning money. It's almost like a job uh, or even for DoorDash or Instacart or Airbnb. You, you know, you have to have enough capital to buy an extra property and then 
you're managing every day a new tenant. So it's a lot of management. Oftentimes people hire management companies to manage their Airbnbs or other short-term rentals. Neighbor's the first platform where you get a tenant, you get a renter on neighbor.com and they put some boxes in your garage or they put the boat on the side of your house and you're just getting a direct deposit. It's the same amount every month. You can count on it. It's predictable. And, and you're basically doing nothing every month. So dollars per hour, I think it's the highest return of any marketplace. Very interesting. Now, I am curious about uh, the revenue model. So how does the revenue model work? Do people determine their own pricing? Do you provide them, you know, kind of uh, sensitive market data to help them gauge what would be, you know, a, a feasible price for them to charge in their market? I'm sure there's got to be a split somewhere. How does all of that work? Yeah, you're exactly right. Um, we one of the big advantages of using neighbor is we have the best cell storage pricing data of any company in the country. Um, we not only uh, pull in, uh, we, we have a system that pulls in all of the self storage prices of all the publicly available self storage prices of any self storage facility nationwide. But on top of that, we layer on our own data, which is even more powerful because we get so many users and those users are able to price at uh, whatever price they would like to, we leave pricing, up to them, although we give them a strong recommendation. Um, you get individuals that experiment and, and they'll go outside of our recommendations and they'll price twice as high as our recommendation or half as low. And we get to see that pricing variability and what gets rented and that feeds back into our model. So when we're recommending a price to a new host that's signing up, we're able to say you're 90% more likely to get reserved if you use our price. Uh, and we really believe it's the best pricing engine in the self-storage industry. Interesting, interesting. And then I assume that there's a, like a revenue split on the back end. Yeah. So if you as a host, you know, uh, uh, want to charge $200 a month for a space, it works very similar to Airbnb, where we'll go take and we'll tack on a service fee on top of that to charge the renter. And uh, then we collect the full amount and, and you get your amount as a host. And so it's really beneficial for both people because the renters, they're already getting storage that is on average much cheaper than a traditional self-storage facility, even including that additional service fee. Uh, so they don't mind paying it because they're getting a big discount. Uh, and then the hosts are getting basically what they asked for to get on the space. And that's how we earn money is that, that incremental piece on top. Very smart. All right. Now, you know, it sounds all well and good if it works exactly as it's supposed to, right? But of course, nothing ever works the way it's supposed to. So there's always, you know, a challenge along the way. So I'm picturing, you know, just a simple scenario where, you know, I rent out my basement space, it's loaded with someone's boxes, everything's great for four months, and then they stop paying. And now I've got a whole bunch of junk in my basement that doesn't belong to me. But like, for example, in Massachusetts, I don't think that I could actually just throw it out right away. I think I'd have to go through some type of proceeding probably uh, before I could remove, you know, the the items from my home. So, um, you know, how do you advise or prepare people to deal with any of those challenges? Yeah, this is this is another one of the things we discovered when we first launched the business was that we actually didn't invent this concept. You know, we thought we were so smart in, in inventing this concept. It turns out a lot of people were doing this already. Um, what we did is we came in and we systemized it, added a full payment structure and all the safety mechanisms and a whole platform to help manage it for you. 
And this is one of the advantages of using our platform, this very issue that you talked about. In, in most states, you cannot just dispose of those items if a renter stops paying. Uh, you have to actually run through a formal auction process that varies by state. The advantage of listing on Neighbor is we take care of 100% of that on your behalf. In fact, we go a step further and we guarantee you payments. So you as a host, even if the renter stops paying us, we're going to foot the bill and keep paying you as a host uh, during those months that we're not getting paid. In the meantime, we'll be running through the auction process to get those items out of the space. And obviously, this doesn't happen very often. You know, 99.9% .9, most people are highly responsible individuals when they sign up for something. We don't accept like cash or check payments. So we don't deal with a lot of the delinquency rates that traditional storage facilities do. Everything's, you know, uh, paid on an automated basis. It's recurring building. So it bills just like Netflix, you know, your monthly Netflix account. So we don't deal with the, the level of volume of delinquencies that I think some industry players do already. But in the rare event that it does happen, we actually take care of removing all the items, making sure you're paid and, and you're just happy as, a, as, as someone earning passive cash flow. Wow, very smart. And it seems like you've thought a lot of angles and uh, even have maybe a sub marketplace uh, to the marketplace here, which is very smart. Now, you know, it, a lot of people get great ideas and they think, oh, you know, this won't be that hard. You know what I mean? Like, this makes sense. I can build this out. And of course, that's a lot more complicated than people might realize. So I'd love to get into talking about, you know, how you actually created this system and this process and the technology hurdles that you no doubt encountered, you know, um, and really being, you know, kind of upfront and honest about the fact that anyone can have a great idea, but it really takes a lot to execute these ideas. So before we get into that, though, let's go ahead and have a word uh, from our sponsor. Ready to Scale is brought to you by Blue Lake Capital, where we hunt down the best multifamily investment opportunities that we can find and invite investors to join in with us. We target Class B value-add multifamily properties across the Sun Belt. Our CEO, Ellie Perlman, invests a substantial amount of capital into every deal. This means our interests are aligned with yours. If you're an accredited investor looking to expand your portfolio and diversify sponsors, be sure to visit us at bluelake-capital.com. Blue Lake Capital, be bold, be extraordinary, and keep moving forward. All right, so walk us through it. You get the great idea. You're like, yeah, we'll just start to set up a website or something, I imagine. So, you know, kind of how did you actually develop the product and what were some of the surprises along the way that you didn't anticipate up front? Well, you're absolutely right. It's, it's no small undertaking. At Neighbor, our largest team in the organization is our software engineering team. Uh, because at the end of the day, what we provide is great software for our users. And, you know, th this isn't like a traditional self-storage company where, you know, the majority of your workforce might be um, you know, kind of manning the, the, the desk at the storage facility. Our employees are software engineers building software, but it didn't start out that way. When we, when my, myself and my two co-founders first started this company, we uh, were, were kind of rabid adherents to the Paul Graham, Y Combinator philosophy of do things that don't scale and, and build it once you need it to scale. And so literally our first website you would put in your information to be a renter or a host. 
and then we would call you and it was us. I mean, the, the software was us calling back and forth. What price do you want? What, what time do you want to move in? When it got to be that we had too much volume and scale, we built a, a nice you know, map system where people could find each other without going through us and they could book each other, but we still didn't have payments. So we were still, we were still on the back end, literally uh, once the reservation took place, getting you to pay us. We were using Venmo, you know, they were paying us through Venmo and we would pay out the host through Venmo. And, uh, you know, got to the point where that was unsustainable. So then we built payments into the product. All of that took place in the first, you know, six months to a year. Now that we're a nationwide company that's operating in every city in all 50 states, and we're working with both small property owners that maybe list a garage or a shed, and we're working with, you know, 10, $20 billion REITs that have, you know, property in 200 different cities that they've onboarded onto our platform we have to build, you know, different almost SaaS tools to work for for each party, so they can manage. It's it's very different to manage one space than it is to manage, you know, a thousand spaces. Yeah, I can only imagine. It sounds like it definitely would be a, a big challenge. Um, you know, I'm curious too. Do you run into uh, you know, challenges too with reporting uh, because, you know, REITs, for example, require very high level detailed reporting, you know, that's radically different than, you know, what a mom and pop renting out their garage is going to expect from you. So how have you addressed some of those challenges? Uh, we do. Yeah. We, and, and those partners, we've built them, you know, very custom tools, uh, you know, that, that our large partners have access to, to be able to see payments aggregated up you know, to a, to a kind of a lump sum rather than seeing an, every individual reservation broken out and to really fit with their financial reporting. Um, so you're absolutely right. And the, the beauty of it is those partners, they produce a lot of volume on the platform. So from a, a technology perspective, it makes a lot of sense for us to build those tools because of the value that's provided. For sure. So, you know, from a CEO standpoint, um, uh, throughout this journey, what has surprised you the most that you've, you know, had to work through that you just didn't even anticipate you'd encounter? Well, the lesson that I continue to learn over and over and over again is that, and, and I don't know that this applies just to our company or even to a software company, but that is building a great company just keeps coming back to the people, uh, the people, people, people. If you hire people that are phenomenal at what they do and trust them to do that, then you get great results. And uh, if, if you try to shortcut in any way on the caliber of people, uh, there's pressures. Oh, we, we need to hire this many people, fill these many positions. Um, this person's good enough. That's never, you know, you're much better off just waiting uh, with a position unfilled that's costing the business revenue uh, to, to bring in the absolute best person, which is our, our first core value at Neighbor, uh, which is hire and develop the best. We believe in, uh, of course, no company sets out to hire the worst people. <laughs> but oftentimes when you get in an interview process, especially at, as your company starts to scale, someone comes along, they may be the fourth or fifth interview, and they're good enough for the role. Uh, they, they meet the criteria, and that's the person that gets hired. And we try to be very disciplined at our company. And this has been a learning process in saying, no, good enough is not good enough. 
uh, and we will keep pushing the interview process till we find someone that it that just amazes us. Yeah, I can definitely appreciate and agree with that. Um, I know that for for Blue Lake also, you know, as we've scaled out our team, the right hires are golden and the wrong hires are, you know, disastrous. They're um, costly, you know, it's just, and it is tempting when, you know, you, you, you're you lacking human resources, uh, you know, you're short staffed to just come on, we got to get someone in that role. But you're right, you're 100% right that, you know, being patient and being slow to hire and being you know, kind of dedicated to sticking to, you know, the qualifications that you're truly looking for have to match, um, you know, is critical. And, and I think that much more even with a cultural fit than even skill set per se, because there's That's been right. times, you know, of course, that the skill set is there, but if they're not a culture fit, it really does not work well either. And ultimately, you know, doesn't end well either. So uh, yeah, I can definitely appreciate that. Um, you know, it was funny because before we pushed record, I asked Joseph, you know, so you have 221 employees, huh? That's amazing. And, uh, you know, he laughed a little bit and said, did you get that off LinkedIn? And so FYI, people, the data that you see on LinkedIn is not always accurate, but the company has scaled out a lot. So you've got around 100 employees. And, you know, being the fact that at the end of the day, your business is about the people in it. Um, you know, I'm curious, what would be your advice for properly scaling a team? So I understand the hiring component, but there's also, there's a beauty and an art, you know, to scaling as well. Uh, what have you learned? Well, I think um, something that happens in a lot of companies, and I, I think we're, we're maybe learning this lesson in the industry more broadly, is that there, there develops this mentality that like a bigger team is a better team. And especially, you know, that mentality can develop as a manager, like my, my clout as a manager will increase uh, as, you know, the size of my team increases. And we push back very hard against this kind of mentality and philosophy. And we've told our people, uh, number one, we make every employee an equity holder in the business. And part of the reason we do that is because it creates an ownership mentality where everyone can say, if this business does well, I succeed along with it. The second thing, though, that allows us to say is, look, if, if we go create a you know, $50 billion enterprise or, or pick your number, um, then and, and, and we can do that with 100 people, then, then, then we get to split that across 100 people. Um, if it's necessary to, to, to be able to achieve that objective, to get to that $50 billion level, if it's necessary to hire more than 100 people, by all means, let's do it because that's good for all of us. But if it's not, then let's not. And that really kind of shifts something in the brain where it's like, oh, it's actually not necessarily good to have a bigger team. It's only good if that nth person, the, 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 the marginal person provides a more than more than their percentage marginal benefit, right? They bring more value um, uh, to, to the overall pie. Yeah, very good insight. Um, I definitely can't agree more. And I'm curious too, uh, just because you kind of touched on it, what is the ultimate goal? What are you guys actually working towards as a company? Well, I mean, that's why I love this industry. I, Storing it, storage is 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 boring, um, kind of unsexy, uh, and massive, and 
And I think that's where great marketplaces are born. If you look at, you know, Uber going after taxis uh, and, and limos or, or Airbnb going after hotels or DoorDash going after restaurant delivery, you know, these were not uh, sexy spaces, but they were big spaces. And most people are just unaware of the sheer scale of storage. I think in the United States, we've now built more storage facilities than we have uh, McDonald's, Starbucks, Dunkin' Donuts, Burger Kings, Wendy's, Walmart's, Home Depot's, and Costco's combined. And they're 95% full. It's the highest occupancy of any real estate asset class in the country right now. The industry spends around $5 billion a year just on new construction, and it all gets filled by the end of the year. It's it, it, the fill rate is incredible. And looking at an industry that does, I think, 10 times the annual revenue than the entire taxi and limo industry that Uber and Lyft disrupted. So it's an industry that's 10 times the space, but it's so fragmented. Uh, you know, this is not like hotels where Marriott and Hyatt and Hilton were kind of these big players that Airbnb had to confront. The largest player in this space, public storage, they're a $50 billion company, but they only have 7% market share. And then it goes down from there. 85% of the market is controlled by mom and pop operators. And so, yeah, our, our, our goal here, our you know, mission that's on the wall is to become the largest storage provider in the world. Um, and so, so that's our goal is to pass up public storage. Nice. Very good. Well, I'm cheering you on. Uh, and we also love boring deals. That's what we say here at Blue Lake. The more boring the deal is, the better we like them. Yeah. Um, you know, there's just a lot more security in that. So ultimately, um, you know, if if someone wants to try to incorporate this into their investment strategy, is there a way for people to scale beyond necessarily just their own, you know, residential properties? How have you seen people implement this as part of an actual investment strategy? Yeah, that's actually a very large part of what we do as a company. We've got the residential side, which is great. Um, it, it continues to be our core business, operates in all 50 states. And that looks very much like Airbnb with individuals renting out space in their home. But we've also got a very strong commercial business as well. This is where I mentioned we work with everything from kind of small retail investors all the way up to, you know, 10, 20 billion dollar nationwide REITs. Um, I'll talk about a few of the different examples of, of how we work together and how different investor profiles could get involved. So for larger, like institutional investors that already own property, uh, we work with them in a few different ways. If, if you're a multifamily portfolio, uh, we partner with several of the largest multifamily portfolios in the country or customers on the platform. Um, and we take two things. One, they often build storage lockers in the multifamily unit and they're supposedly for tenants, but tenants never occupy them and they, they stay like 25, 30% occupied. And so we'll take the other 70% and we'll have you to 95% occupancy within a couple months. And it just increases the cash flow. I mean, what are your options for increasing cash flow on a multifamily property other than annual rent increases? You don't have many options. And so anything that increases the cash on cash on that investment is great. The other thing we'll do is often they're required by the city to uh, create, you know, excess parking uh, that doesn't end up getting used, you know, assign one spot to a tenant. So we'll often take all the excess parking and we'll rent it out to the community and, and we'll make sure that is full all the time and that you're earning cash flow on every single parking space. Uh, we'll put long-term vehicle storage in that space. And, and sometimes 
multifamily providers will like that solution so much, they'll end up handing all of their parking over to us and we manage their tenant uh, spaces as well. Then uh, if you're in the office uh, sector, office has been hit very hard right now. And uh, in office, we'll typically take your uh, most underperforming floor or a couple of floors in an office building. Oftentimes this is the first floor or the second floor that no one wants to lease. And we'll build it out as storage. So we'll partner with you and we can help you build it out as storage. We've done this successfully all over the country. Uh, you know, I, there's one example that I love. We, we took a first floor of an office building in downtown SF, built it out, launched it, and we headed to, we headed to 85% occupancy by 60 days after launch. Uh, and that's phenomenal on, on a piece of uh, your property that was earning zero cash flow to all of a sudden turn that into a positive asset. We were approached by a, a big uh, CRE fund the other day, and we talked to them about a couple of their buildings, and and they had two buildings that they'd purchased, and they told us, we underwrote these buildings as if the first two floors would never get rented. Uh, that's just how we underwrote them. We, we, we don't anticipate a dime of revenue off these first two floors. So if you can provide anything, it's additive to us. And we're like, yeah, we can get those to 90% occupancy. Um, and then finally, we'll work with retail portfolios. Oftentimes in retail, you have a number of suites in a strip mall and you'll have the suites that there's always a tenant in them and they always get rented. We don't want those. But then you have those suites in the back or in the corner that you just can't seem to maintain a tenant in and you go five years without a, a tenant in it. We'll take that and we'll, we'll lease it out for storage. We'll often take parking spaces around retail. So that's how we work with big property owners. But say you're just like an individual investor or a smaller, smaller real estate type investor. Um, th these, we, we, we kind of affectionately refer to them as our power users here internally. Uh, they make up a, a sizable component. Um, oftentimes what this looks like is they own a, a bunch of residential properties and they're renting those out as rentals. And they haven't been able to really increase their their cash on cash in years. And we'll take all the little spaces around them and rent those out. We've had individuals take their cash on cash from 15% you know, to 35% on our platform. I saw an individual the other day that had a large lot next to one of his properties. He took his cash on cash to 70%, uh, which, which is, you know, it's life-changing uh, for, for many of these people. We also have some investors that will buy neighbor dedicated properties. It just here in my home market of Salt Lake City, you could deploy 500 grand and that gets you a townhome, um, which you could rent out for, for maybe 2000 to 2,500 a month uh, in the Salt Lake market. So yielding you, you know, 25, 30K a year. You could also maybe turn that into a short-term rental and it might increase your yields to 40K a year. But with that same 500 grand, you could purchase uh, a one to two acre lot and pave it and uh, list it on neighbor as, as vehicle storage. And that would yield you $100,000 a year. So I mean, you look at the yield differences, it's just incredible kind of the investment opportunities. And oftentimes these individuals will reach out. We have a whole team that we can set them up with kind of a, a business development team that will help them think about their investment, where they want to do it, how they want to price it, that sort of thing to get them earning um, money. 
Well, a very good information. I hope everybody was taking notes. Uh, you know, I do have to say there's a lot of ways to make additional income on multifamily properties, but this is also a very good idea. So um, I'm, I'm certainly going to be passing along the suggestion uh, to our asset management team in case it's an idea that we haven't yet incorporated. Uh, so great information. Thank you so much, Joseph. Absolutely. Yeah. So to wrap up the show, I just have kind of a handful of quick questions for you, um, you know, just kind of for fun, um, you know, and to delve into a, a little bit more subject matter. So just out of curiosity, you know, what has caught your attention in the news recently and why are you watching it? Well, this will dovetail with with some of the topics that I just covered, but a, a major um, movement in the real estate industry has been the collapse of of commercial office prices. And especially, you know, I think we're just seeing the very beginning of this with a lot of kind of term loans coming due where the interest rates are going to be increasing. And all of a sudden, these these pretty sizable portfolios are underwater on their investment and they just have to walk away from it and hand it to the bank. And you, you're seeing this already in markets like San Francisco and, and New York City, but I think it's going to be spreading uh, quite rapidly, especially for office spaces that, you know, are not like class A tier one, you know, guaranteed to have a tenant in them. It gets really hard to make these spaces work. And there's been a lot of talk in the news about what do we do with this space? And the, the idea that gets tossed around the most is like residential conversion. And residential conversion is great in a very, very isolated set of circumstances. Like the building basically had to be built in a certain way where you can drill through the concrete and with close enough to windows where you can actually have windows and in space. It works phenomenal in some very isolated downtown areas for very isolated buildings. And it usually you end up putting, you end up buying the building for a discount and putting almost the, the price of the building back in uh, just to retrofit the space. We've helped a lot of partners realize a whole different vision for it where they can spend a very, very nominal amount to convert it to storage. Um, oftentimes, you know, as low as 10 or $20 a square foot. Uh, and all of a sudden it's a cash yielding entity. You don't have to do some magic transformation. So that's definitely something we're following and we're trying to stay at the forefront of this kind of uh, big, big push. Absolutely, as you should. Another little component that people don't think about is uh, the complications with actually the bathroom layouts and how difficult yeah. it can be in a condition like that. If there's only bathrooms I mean, on two different sides of the building, you know, uh, it just doesn't work. It doesn't make sense when, it, when you look at the numbers. Um, yeah, for sure. All right. And then one other uh, question before we uh, get your contact info is how do you keep yourself performing your best? How do you avoid burnout? How do you, you know, maintain a focus on relentlessly pursuing excellence in what you're doing? I don't. Um, <laughs> I don't know if there's any any great hacks for that, but I do. I will say um we, we talk about uh, our second core value at Neighbor is, is hard working for the extra mile. And one of the things that we often say in conjunction with this when we're hiring is that it's very important to hire people who love what they do. Because if, if you're hard working as a means to an end, if, if you're working hard to accomplish some end, you're going to burn out. But if the hard work in and of itself like is the end, if, if you work hard because you love 
what you're doing and you can't get enough of it, you will never burn out because you'll always be doing what you love. And so that's important for us is finding people that clearly have a passion for what they do. Uh, there, there can be individuals that they want to join the company that they think it's exciting. And so they're willing to like do something to get in the door. That doesn't work out. You have to love your craft. And so that goes a long way to, to reducing burnout. At the end of the day, though, when you're doing something hard, you know, if everyone could build a, a, a large company, everyone would. The fact of the matter, it's hard. And so it's nice to have good support systems as well. I, I personally have a just a phenomenal family. I've got six kids that give me a lot of energy um, and, you know, love, love spending the weekends doing yard work and, and things like that to get outdoors and not in front of a computer screen and, and fairly engaged in, you know, community and church life as well, which also is like a nice refresh before hitting again each week. But ultimately I, I kind of miss work. I, I, I like what we're doing. It's fun to build this. It's, it's disruptive and, I like the people I work with. And, and so I think that's really how you avoid it. Yeah, very good advice. And having some diversity and a little bit of not exactly balance always, but I think the diversity is an important yeah. element. That's yeah. right. Not balance. Yeah, not, <laughs> people get tripped up on balance. Quite yeah, well. yeah, it doesn't work. <laughs> All right, great. Well, Joseph, if people want to get in touch with you, how can they find you? Yeah, so you can, you can well, you can find us at neighbor.com. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, my email is joseph at neighbor.com. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're also on the App Store. We're the number one ranked self-storage app in the country. So you can find us on, on almost any platform. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you very much for taking some time to uh, share all of this with me. I found it very interesting, and I'm sure that our listeners did too. Uh, for those of you that tuned in today, thank you so much for your time. Be sure to like, rate, and review. Let us know what you think of our new season. If you have any recommendations, we're all ears. And in the meantime, continue to be bold, keep moving forward, and go build an extraordinary life. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>